Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, a voyage of discovery for curious foodies everywhere. My name is Jay Taylor. I'll be your pilot for this adventure, along with our navigator and food fact finder, James Winter. Hello. And on today's show, we'll be welcoming in a very special guest host, the master of spice himself, Vivek Singh, to discover some secrets of Indian cooking from one of Britain's finest chefs. We'll be delving into some of the world's most famous foods that are actually invented by accident. Plus, investing more gadgets into our hall of infamy. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and keep all your arms and legs inside the vehicle as we take another journey to the centre of food. Hello, James. How are you, sir? I'm very good, Jay. How are you? I'm very happy. I'm very excited about uh, our guest today and who oh, we're going to be speaking yes, to too, live from too. the kitchen. I know. So it's our first complete sort of hijack of a, of a major London restaurant <laughs> dining space. So God knows what will happen. But before that, last week, uh, we did a great uh, chat with Mark Meltonville all about the sort of history of beer, which was a fascinating dive into the sort of origins of the pub, the origins of beer, all the crossovers with it. But obviously, the one thing that really caught our attention was the great beer flood Mm. of London town and... uh, it sounded amazing, and I know you've been exploring it since Well, I mean, once Mark sort of, and, and you guys talked about it, you, you can't ignore something like the Great Beer Flood. And obviously, <laughs> it, first of all, you think it's a completely made-up story by people in a pub. But it turns out that actually on the 17th of October, so around this kind of time of year in 1814, um, at about 4.30 in the afternoon of that day, there was... Um, an incident where where a very tall beer containing vessel slipped and split um, and and sort of sent I mean almost like four thousand imperial barrels of of ten month old porter sort of cascading out of the Horseshoe Brewery, which apparently was at the junction of Tottenham Court Road and Oxford Street. For those of you that, that, that know the West End of London, sending a thirteen foot wave. Oh my God, beer. isn't that big? Yeah, 9.1 <laughs> metres or something, you know, sort of rolling down, maybe five metres, sorry, I'm exaggerating slightly. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> down the, down, sort of down the streets. And, and obviously it sounds hilariously funny and I guess now we're talking about it, it kind of was, but at the time it was a very tragic incident and, and people, you know, a number of people were killed. Obviously there must have been an awful lot of damage um, and an awful lot of hurt and, and shock, but really it's, it's just an extraordinary event, which I don't think I've ever heard of anything like it i mean it's not something that you hear about very often on on news round or wherever you you, you get your your news these days but, uh, but i did hear of one thing i remember once we went to the absinthe factory in france and i did remember hearing something about a giant vat of perno once breaking into the river and uh it flooded into the river and for days afterwards hundreds of french people were running out with goblets and beakers mm, to the river to try and get perno infused water but uh, but a beer I've, flood well, right. well, we talked. We talked about trying to do a tribute to this every year. I certainly think that should be on the cards, shouldn't it, for us next year? Go oh, to our own beer fund. Well, absolutely, or at least go to you know one of the pubs around uh, Tottenham Court Road and Oxford Street, and then have a few porters in memory of. Uh, it's about eight people that were killed in this incident, so there's maybe a more sombre way to to do it. But certainly, we can celebrate it, and I think it's well worth remembering. Beer, absolutely. Yeah, a beer, beer, a beer person. Absolutely. I was just thinking about your perno example there. For any of those people that have. For, I mean, I only know because my mother's favourite drink was Perdo with a splash of water. Something unusual happens with Perdo, a mix of water. It goes all cloudy. Um, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, so I imagine that river was very cloudy, wherever it was, the, per- <laughs> the Perdo flood. It goes kind of milky white. 
<laughs> we're lucky enough to have listeners all around the world so gang out there if any of you know any of any other great drinks floods over the years in different countries i'm sure australia must have had something beer orientated yeah. the great beer flood of melbourne or something get in touch um, at journey to center of food on instagram um but james here comes a tenuous link to go with beer you've got to have curry how do you like that eh? that was great <laughs> <laughs> that That's leads good. us perfectly anyway, to our guest host on. for today <laughs> Uh, Vivek Singh is one of the most successful and respected modern Indian chefs in the country with four renowned London restaurants and one in Oxford to his name including the Cinnamon Club, Cinnamon Kitchen Oxford and the Cinnamon Kitchen Battersea He's a global reputation of one of the masters of Indian fine dining with signature culinary style that marries modern Indian flavours with Western techniques and we are very honoured to welcome him aboard Journey to the Centre of Food Chef Vivek Singh, hello! Hello. For obviously, this is you can't see Vivek, but he is literally in a part of the dining room at the Cinnamon Club, just down the road from the Houses of Parliament, the seat of power of this great nation, where you know that many MPs and power mongers of, of of the world come together to eat their Indian food. You know, it's quite exciting, isn't it? I mean, anything can happen in the background of this, but you can't see. He's it. in his whites. There's people laying tables. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Thank you for. <laughs> What do they all think about what you're doing? Can they all see what you're up to? Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think they've they've put me on a on a deadline. So I I, I think I got an hour. So uh, before <laughs> before I've been you know I've been I'll be shunted out of this room um, because we're expecting guests. But um, <laughs> <laughs> tell them to keep the noise down in the background when they do when the guests are sitting down. It's like you may sit there, but you're not allowed to talk. Yes, you recording sit there, but you're not allowed to talk. <laughs> Um, I mean, you're right about the room, James. You know, the, if there ever was to be a recent history of Britain being written um, with the political um, conspiracies and you know all of that, um, the backroom drama that goes on. I mean, I'm pretty sure the gallery room at the Cinnamon Club would feature in quite a few of those um, stories. So um, no, it's a rather fortuitous uh, space to be in. Um, albeit another 45 odd minutes. No, no, very much. <laughs> Thanks very much for asking. Well, it's a pleasure always. I know, you know, it's a great treat to have your incredible intellect with us. I mean, you know, you've, you've, you've increased the, uh, the food sort of understanding level of this podcast by about 4,000%. So thank you. The, the thanks is all, all on ours. But just, just so people understand that the Cinnamon Club is actually inside the converted Westminster Library so it was the actual library and obviously a lot of the books remain as part of the decor of the restaurant but it's it's got that kind of feel I mean which somehow sort of complements the food I think so I don't know whether you want to just describe how the food is is presented at the Cinnamon Club so that people understand no absolutely um you know it's um it's it's, it's again it's one of those things um it's um uh, it's it's almost over the last 20 odd years of running the cinema club has become an institution in the london restaurant scene and yet it still continues to remain a mystery remain a discovery of sorts you know it's still the kind of place that you um very often walk past not realizing what a great restaurant there is behind those uh, you know double doors uh, it's a bit like a tardis from the outside it's almost in, impossible to conceive um, how big and how grand and how uh, brilliant the dining room is. And you're right, it used to be the old Westminster Library. Um, and I think it was 1991 that the library was moved to more modern premises. And for about, 
for about five years, um, the building remained vacant, um, completely infested by pests and what have you. And apparently there was once even a, a, the, um, a discussion around demolishing this building. And so there, there was a Sony Society, which was uh, just a non, not-for-profit sort of charitable um, uh, organization just close by. Um, and then they kind of, you know, went up in arms and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and um, um, got the decision revoked. Anyway, from 1995 to 1999, it remained um, vacant and it had finally got granted its change of views in 1999 for it to be a coach and horses, would you believe it? It would a pub. You it, mean like just a, a pub? Yeah. Wow. It would have been a Westminster pub. Yet another West, Westminster pub um, where, you know, coaches after coaches of uh, tourists would have, you know, got down and, you know, uh, and, and had sort of a pint to, to ex celebrate their experience around Westminster. But, you know, life has its own plans, as they say. Um, it wasn't meant to be. And, you know, it, it was meant to be a cinema club. And there we are. Um, the old Westminster Library has been, as a modern Indian restaurant, it was quite audacious then, certainly, well, you know, bordering on madness at the time, to kind of <laughs> think of a 230-seater restaurant, um, even conceiving, charging people the kind of money that we were charging then, let alone what we, you know, what people spend here now. Um, it, it was an, a really sort of wild and wacky idea of, uh, doing modern Indian food, <laughs> and um, yeah, over the years it's gone on and done all, all of that. Um, it's a beautiful dining room. Uh, it still very much looks like the um, like the library and feels like the library. And as they say, with most most good um, transformations and projects, is that uh, the best things are often left alone. And so, and the best way to leave something alone is to run out of money. If you don't have any money to spend on a project. That's, that's <laughs> such a restaurateur's point of view, isn't it? <laughs> so, you know, because we ran out of Keep money. Keep going so, until the money runs out. Yeah. So, you know, you, 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 um, you know, you leave the room as it is and you buy the books by the yard. I have to put my hand up and um, um, come out and admit openly that actually all the books that you see on the shelves uh, adorning the, the library. They aren't the original books being left behind in the library. Obviously, there was nothing in here. Uh, but we, it, it is a, one of the cheapest ways of refurbishing a restaurant, actually buy, buy books by the yard and fill up entire <laughs> walls. I can tell you. <laughs> well, I think that's a, interesting as a side topic. I think there's been a growth in that industry since sort of a pandemic and COVID for people to fill the background of all their Zoom calls. So people have been, <laughs> but people have honestly been curating what's behind them. So if you want to appear like you know about economics or business, yeah, you, you go and you can go online and buy business books by the yard, and they just get sent to you, and you put them on your shelf. Ridiculous! <laughs> so you That's can incredible. Oh, it's wonderful. So you know, it's a good business to be in. I think. Yeah. But what I wonder why you were talking, Vivek. Be, I mean, you talk about modern Indian food, and I think that's a really interesting concept for, for a lot of people listening, especially in, in the UK, across the world. It means different things to, to different people, but it's kind of Britain's relationship with Indian food is very interesting. And so for you to call your food modern Indian, you know, is, is quite a kind of 
you know, a concept that is probably worth just for, if you wouldn't mind explaining a little bit more about what you mean, but also I'm interested to know how you have seen the, your, your customers' view of modern Indian food adapt with your journey over the last sort of 20, well, it's 20 years, isn't it, this year of the cinema yes, club? Yes, as, as we speak. Um, it's 20 years and 20 years of, um, you know, um, kind of pushing boundaries and trying to trying to get people to try something different and experience something. Um, I mean, the relationship of Indian food and Britain goes back such a long time. I mean, way, way uh, longer than any of us give it credit for. Uh, or, and even sort of Britain's love for Indian, you know, Indian food and Indian restaurants per se. Uh, long, long before the Cinnamon Club and long before 2001 and so on. I mean, there were still 6,000 or 8,000 Indian restaurants up and down the country and much loved. And dare I say, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a reflection of British uh, folks' affinity for Indian food. But it was, you know, dare I say, it was slightly stuck in a rut. And certainly so it felt like to me, looking at it from an outsider's perspective, um, when I was researching, you know, where I should consider um, having my next, next restaurant or opening the next restaurant, um, it became quite evident to me that there's so many easy wins, you know, in terms of um, the menus were stuck in a rut. They weren't that, you know, changing as seasonally. There wasn't the, the care for sourcing or the quality of ingredients or seasonality. And these were the things that most Indian restaurants were focusing on at the time. And those were the ones that I thought of as an opportunity. But um, aside from the fact that I had a big rent to pay in Westminster and I needed to charge more money. <laughs> <laughs> That aside, I mean, you know, it, it, we couldn't have done, uh, just carried on serving uh, the same menus and the same food and expected people to um, to, to flock to us. Uh, flock being the operative word. So, yeah, there was an element of pushing boundaries and, you know, kind of um, establishing a point of difference, which was challenging in many ways, in more, more ways than uh, any of us can imagine. Uh, it was challenging because it was sort of, Challenging the notion of you know Indian food being cheap, cheap and cheerful, uh, or it being devoid of innovation or creativity or seasonality, it was also challenging the idea of you know why should you know challenging the idea that you know you ain't try to fix something that ain't broken you know and so on and so forth. There was there was a lot of um, uh, preconceived notions that needed to be challenged and changed. It required behavioural changes, required a leap of faith, it required uh, sometimes just jolting people out of their comfort zone. Um, so when you know when people would come in and uh, not even open the menu and not even read it, uh, and would, would just want to order a rogan josh, and for the waiter to tell them that they weren't having a rogan josh because there wasn't one on the menu, it was <laughs> it, it, it wasn't something that you know would go down easily or lightly. Or for a restaurant, an Indian restaurant, not to serve poppadoms and chutneys, um, not even at a price, not even being sold on the menu. Because I really did want people to kind of break from the um, the day-to-day -day and break from what they were used to in order for them to sit up and take notice of what was being offered. So there was a lot of challenges around the way and a lot of challenges that we put along the way of uh, the diners to want to change their behavior. Um, but in other words, I, I had a lot of challenge and pushback from all kinds of people. You know, um, people would say, look, Chef, who's this food for? Because, you know, we Indians aren't going to spend good money on Indian food. We go to Zuma and Hakkasan. <laughs> you know, that's what <laughs> we like to spend. And, and British people would say, yeah, Chef, it was great, but this isn't really authentic, is it? 
and who is it for because we we brits we love our curry and we don't expect much from it so you know <laughs> it was this sticky situation where if you aren't for the british and you aren't for the asians or indians and who are you for um, but it was an idea that i thought it's time had come and and, and thankfully could have that we pers- persevered with it because it started a whole new wave of looking at restaurants and and menus and seasonality uh, it changed so many things not just for uh, our restaurant but it changed it changed so many things for indian restaurants in general um it is amazing it's amazing to see how far we've come and Absolutely. you know a lot of this has just become the rigueur and acceptable now and i think that's the that's a, a point worth underlining is that i mean certainly the cinnamon club was a pioneer in its own right for its own different ways to present indian food but what it showed a lot of young chefs indian or not indian or who were interested in cooking indian food but there was another way you know to to present indian food to the british nation so i think well done hats off for you because i think the food if you, if people haven't obviously i would recommend it to anybody but if you are listening and there's a chance for you to get to to certainly the cinnamon club or any of the cinnamon ones to 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 try some of vivex sort of it is modern indian and i think what's interesting is that what i wanted to talk to you about was also kind of a regionality of indian cuisine which you'd never get a sense of as you said from a from an indian menu where what parts of india have different types of personality in their cooking and and that's what you start to get when you dig a bit deeper so i don't know whether that is is something that you draw inspiration from when coming up with your recipes but certainly there's a real personality to different parts of india isn't there i mean is there a way that you could summarize different territories for us so that we understand i don't know I mean yeah you you're absolutely right I mean it is it is very difficult to classify something as vast as uh, the Indian subcontinent and all the different religions and cultures in the regions and you know all these different people that uh, 1.4 billion people that live in the country and make it up for all of it to be described into one uh, I'll put under one umbrella it, it is quite a big challenge I mean in, in the same way as here we do not talk of what you know of european food per se you know saying well this is western european food or eastern european uh, it's a little bit unfair and it's also difficult almost impossible to um, club indian food in that sort of you know one one size one thing fits all there isn't one but i mean very very roughly i mean there's so many different influences you know whether you're talking about um, is it a hindu style of cooking or is it a muslim style of cooking um is it north indian south indian east indian west indian <clears throat> we say east indian the you know just geographically it's quite a different part of the country it's bengali i mean it's bengal in the plains of the himalayan plains where there's a lot a very fertile land and a lot grows that agriculture but people quite poor um they eat a lot of rice obviously because it grows and they grow <laughs> rice a lot um but they use mustard oil in the cooking they have um, the fresh water fish and that kind of shapes and informs the cooking of bengal other than the culturally um so sort of well to do and they are quite uh, culturally accomplished people they love entertaining and love um the hospitality kind of runs in their blood so i mean that brings it with it another layer and and the, the eastern indian cooking and eastern indian um dishes are so different from anything that you would find in most indian restaurants uh, again you go to the north and you find a sort of you know prominent um not necessarily an influence it is actually an influence of the uh, the moguls who came in from the north and the west you know 
the Persian, the Iranian influences, the, the tandoori style of cooking, uh, much colder winters, um, also the land of milk and honey and plenty. So in Punjab, you have lots of butter and cream being used. Um, some people say, you know, chicken was first domesticated in India, in Punjab. Um, and therefore, the tandoori chicken seems to be a, you know, um, quite a good fix. <laughs> the tandoor arrived, the tandoor arrived in probably the 11th or the 12th century. Uh, and they had, uh, they had domesticated fowl for uh, hundreds of years. And um, through goes a skewer, a bit of marination and, you know, <laughs> and, and there comes tandoori chicken. But, you know, so, so there is a lot of North Indian, North Indian delicacies and North Indian food is quite different. Again, the staple becomes wheat. And there's a lot of milk and honey and uh, uh, nuts and cream. And, and it's, it's quite, again, it's, it's rich. The, the cuisine is rich, but also the people are relatively wealthier. You go down to the south, you have a really, really, um, it's both different because it's the rice basin. It's mostly a, a vast coastline, a lot more fish and seafood. And, and down south, you know, in Kerala, where the spices grow and um, it's fish and spices and coconut and um, and very little ghee or no ghee whatsoever because there's no, um, they don't consume dairy as much. They don't have the same kind of livestock. And stuff. Uh, you go to the east again, it's so different. Rajasthan, the cooking of Rajasthani and Gujarati and, you know, um, very thrifty people, um, not very wealthy, not very well to live off the land. And because it's so dry and arid and uh, it's desert-like landscape, um, they make the most of everything. They don't want to waste anything. They, you know, they use maize and chickpeas and a lot of mustard, again, is used in mustard oil. Um, the cooking goes into mustard oil. And smaller animals like, um, like goat would be used for, for milk as well as for yogurt and things because a smaller animal needs a lot less um, feeding and water. So, yeah, and, and so it just, the whole thing just changes from every few miles, every few kilometers. You just have these different influences. Um, mm. It's so difficult to sum up. And I, I've been very lucky because ever since we opened here, I've had a team of, uh, at the time, eight chefs, now up to 18 chefs. And at the time, you know, when I had 10, 12 chefs working with me, we all came from different parts of the country. We all draw inspirations from, uh, you know, various recipes that you would only find in there. So in that sense, the Cinnamon Club was probably the only pan-Indian restaurant to have these different influences being able to offer uh, to its audience. Vivek, I'm interested. When you were talking about, obviously, such a vast uh, inspirational you know different inspirations coming from different places but the idea that which I think is amazing which is when you were when you've started out you had this vision you were going to pioneer and do it in a different way some chefs we speak to had a particular dish or something that was a breakthrough moment with their clientele which kind of changed perceptions or allowed people was there a dish that you remember that you created when you gave it to your your clientele and you they got it and that you thought this has pushed them in the right direction? Uh, such a good one. Um, I, I had two of those moments. One was before I opened the restaurant, um, and long before. Uh, I used to work at the Obroy Hotel, and <clears throat> um, I used to run the Indian kitchen there. And, <laughs> and, and my executive chef was an Australian, um, uh, Australian chap. 
he he used to have daily specials on the menu, and so he'd often come into my section and you know say, "Well, can I borrow a bit of your tandoori, your tandoori spices marination? Can I borrow a little bit of the roasted aubergine crush? Can I borrow borrow some of that mint chutney or whatever it was?" And then um, it would end up on the menu as Edwin's special of the day. <laughs> I said, "Well, Edwin, this is this isn't yours. It's mine." <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he'd say, "Well, you know, yes, it is right. You're right. You know, it's but you know, it's, it's Australian meat, um, Australian rack of lamb, uh, tandoor roasted aubergine crush, and you know, mint and onion sauce, whatever." Um, and say, "And Mr. Obra would never let let you do this." And I'd often say to Mr. Obra, "Why wouldn't you know? Why wouldn't you do this with Indian food?" And he said, "Look, mate." I love your cooking and I love all of this, but you know I'm I'm in the business of running running hotels, not reinventing food, and therefore you know I I, I was convinced that this was the the way forward. So that what particular dish kind of uh, was that moment when it dawned upon me that this is the kind of food that I should be doing, you know, using quality produce, good techniques, and uh, and my own spicing. And so that was one moment, and the other moment that I um, I clearly remember from the Cinnamon Club. <clears throat> Was um, I think at the time in two thousand one when we opened, people used to spend on an average fifteen pound a head uh, on an Indian meal in in London, and yeah. very often that would include a pint of beer or not pint, but a you know a, a bottle of beer, a small bottle. So that was the average spend in the restaurant, and I had some dishes. Um, I had some dishes that were kind of seventeen pound fifty just for that dish. Which was considered really audacious. Yeah. Yeah. At the time, and I, um, I, I had come across a supplier who'd give me venison. I was so excited about cooking game because I never cooked with game before, and I really wanted to. But there was no way I could make it work for under twenty pound, uh, at twenty pound a portion. And so there was a big hoo ha about. Oh well, you know, um, can you ever put a main course north? Of twenty pounds in an Indian restaurant, and would people mm. just revolt? <laughs> you know, would there be um, a revolution? And um, anyway, so we we thought about it and all that, and I thought, okay, maybe nineteen nineteen fifty or something. Until somebody else, somebody one of the, one of the guys used to work here had worked at uh, at the Ivy, and he said, no, 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 not nineteen fifty. Put it on twenty one, um, because you know and. And so we put it on twenty one, and actually nobody cared. <laughs> really, <laughs> that's really interesting. You think that would be a big problem, right? I think that that twenty pound barrier was more a barrier in our head than it was for anybody who really cared for venison. Anyway, we we put that on the menu. It was received really well, um, and and you know that, that whole sort of you know blackstone flower sauce, uh, potato and fatty beef stir fry, and a tandoori cooked. Um, uh, sort of saddle of venison that was cooked really pink and red in the middle um, was that sort of defining moment for me when I thought, now this is that moment from which there is a point of no return. People will, people have you know kind of crossed that, crossed the you know water as they say, crossed the bridge. Now they're into you know there isn't no uh, going back. And I don't think we have ever looked back from that. Um, you know now now we just put things for on the menu that we think. Um, showcase our cu- you know uh, the curation of ingredients, the quality, the seasonality, and if they if they cost what they cost, then that's so be it. Mm. 
Wonderful. That's I mean, it. that sounds wonderful. That Yeah, it's a fascinating point of view. Isn't it? I was just wondering, as you were talking, I was going to ask Vivica a technical question about spicing, really, about does certain ingredients in your head lend themselves to certain spice combinations? So if, if you've got a piece of salmon, are you already thinking, well, that's that, that, and that? Or if you've got a piece of chicken, it could be that, that, and that. If you've got lamb, it's always that, that, and that. You know, is that is that something, how is that how you work, or is it not as simple as that? Is it is it just a, about how you're feeling? Um, no, no, um, it's not just about how you're feeling. Um, there are uh, lots of uh, recipes that have been around for you know, 100, 200, 300 years, and these are time-tested combinations that really work. Um, I, I mean, a lot of people think of, look at spices and think, oh, uh, oh my God, uh, I, I really don't cook with spice much. I don't know what I should do, you know. How long can I keep them for? And you know, if it's if I'm going to cook once out of a book and it's got thirteen different spices, if I buy like you know big packets or small packets, how long will yeah. it last? And what do I do with what's left over? It's a lot. It can be quite daunting for many people. And you think, okay, well, you know, I only cook once, but it actually cost me about twenty-five pounds for just to get the spices in. Um, and now I don't know what to do with it. And actually, it might have been easier and cheaper and simpler to just order a takeaway. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? But, but the point I say to people you know, look you don't need to have all the spices all the time um, and it can it doesn't need to be even though this could be the most uh, complex part of Indian cooking because I don't think there is another cuisine in the world that uses spices in the in the various in the myriad sort of hundreds of different combinations and there isn't another cuisine that uses multiple spices in varying degrees uh, of proportions um but it doesn't have to be that difficult. It can be uh, as simple as one, two, three. And I say one, two, three, meaning more in terms of um, accessibility. And if you start getting comfortable with a set of spices, then you go on. And, and for that, James, my, my initial recommendation to most people is, you know, you don't even have to have expensive spices. It's very, very simple. It's cumin, you know, cumin seeds, um, coriander seeds, fennel seeds peppercorn, peppercorn being the, the most expensive, uh, dried chilies and turmeric. You know, these, these six ingredients and salt, you could literally cook hundreds of dishes before you needed anything else. I mean, you, know, you, can, you can grind them really fine and use them in sauces. You can grind them really coarse, uh, just crush them and sprinkle them on a piece of fish or, or chicken breast or whatever. And you just simply pan fry, and it, there you got you you know you got all the flavors and all the taste and all the goodness. So that's that's number one. <clears throat> then the number two is when I say you know when you when you become quite comfortable with this uh, initial cheap uh, spices, is when you go into that next level of spices, which uh, things like a, a little bit more expensive, but fairly aromatic, and you use very small quantities of them. Things like uh, green cardamom, black cardamom. Clove, mace, nutmeg, cinnamon, peppercorn. Um, you, you look at all of these spices and you, you, you quickly realize um, that they, they have a great shelf life. They, they keep for years. If you, as long as you keep them in a, you know, um, in a sealed container away from direct light, in a cool cupboard, cool, dry environment, it lasts for years. Nothing happens to them as long as they're whole. These are also the spices that form the basis of a garam masala, which is, you know, the, the, um, that uh, the house masala that everybody, every chef, everything. Um, again, 
it could be as simple as five of these spices or three of these spices. It could be as complex as 32 different spices. You know, it can be anything in between. You can choose and pick what you want to use and how much. So when you look at these spices, you also realize that these form the backbone of the spice trade upon which, you know, uh, which has been going on for thousands of years. Uh, since, you know, before Vasco da Gama uh, and after that, you know, the um, mercantile uh, trade. But before that, when Arabs had the monopoly on this, in Roman Empire, people would exchange a sack of nutmeg for as much as it would cost to buy a townhouse in London then. So that was the value of spices and the entire spice trade was based around that. So, you know, there, there could be something as, as, um, as complex and as uh, aromatic and as expensive as that. But it can also be something very simple. And, uh, and then there are things that we use, things like fenugreek, uh, fenugreek seeds. Uh, that, you know, they, we use them for the medical properties of turmeric, which is meant to be a, a fantastic antiseptic and a, something to boost up your body's immune system. Um, and, and, you know, so you're asking for fish. And I think, I, I think of, I look at fish and I think if there are only two spices you can, you know, you can use or you can have. Uh, one is nigella seeds, uh, black onion seeds, um, and carom seeds, which is also known as uh, ajawan. Um, nigella, equal, equal parts of nigella seeds and uh, ajawan, together with any fish, seafood, or prawn, is a marriage made in heaven. It's, it's a very, you know, it's a quick one. Uh, you'll never go wrong with that. But otherwise, um, otherwise, all of that other stuff. Yeah, wonderful. Well, that, it's I'd... really inspiring hearing you speak in that way as well, because it is, as you said, one of those, one of those impasses, but also one of those areas where we do not over here have the same uh, natural affinity with spice. It doesn't feel. It feels like something that we discover and love and want to learn more about. But it's not been around us ever since you know we were young, and it doesn't feel like a completely natural thing to do i'm also curious from your perspective a lot of our chefs listening i'm sure some of them do work in indian cuisine but others push in all different areas but one of the things that i think can unite everybody is amongst a lot of chefs they want to find a way to be more creative they want to find a way to sort of push the boundaries like you've done yeah. what what is your advice on how to do that because i think it must be very easy for not just chefs but anyone who cooks at home or professionally to get stuck in a rut of doing what they do how do you get yourself out of it what's your process yeah well I, I, it's such a good question because it's and no matter how how um how innovative and how creative you are there comes it's everybody gets into that rut and it's it's just a cycle for some some people it's a short cycle some people it's a much longer cycle um but yeah you're right i mean the only way that i find um which is a short, short way of um, staying out of the rut is to keep experiencing new things. I, you know, um, you go out to eat or you go out, uh, you, you watch, watch things. And I mean, these days people watch things on YouTube and pick, pick, pick up recipes from there. Um, but um, it's, it's more about sort of, you know, um, experiencing different things that you uh, haven't naturally done. So, and, and that's the only way of you know, not getting stuck in the, six spice, 10 spice, 15 different ways of cooking. That, that seems to be the only way. And they also, you know, this, this thing about constantly looking for the next uh, ingredient or next thing mm. that you haven't used. I mean, uh, I, I, 
for years just kept saying, you know, I, I maintain that as a chef, um, it was much more, uh, much, bene much more beneficial for the business as well to be to carry on cooking meat and fish and, you know, because it offered variety choice and um, helped with spends in the restaurants and what have you. But I can't help but take notice of this changing um, leanings for people to want to be more planet friendly and want to be, you know, more plant based and what have you. And actually, it's not hard at all being plant based in Indian cooking, because there's so many recipes that just for years, for hundreds of years, have just been around. I mean, we don't even have to omit something or take something away or substitute anything. They're just naturally vegan. So, you know, it's, it's a, discovering a lot of that stuff. You must be f really feeling that change in the, in the public's desire to want to have that kind of menu. I mean, are you, is the Cinnamon Club menu now much more vegetarian than it was 20 years ago? Um, no, not much more, but it's definitely... Um, so in terms of proportion, it's only marginally more. I mean, so I used to have less than a... I probably was less than a quarter, almost 20% of the menu was vegetarian and 80% was meat and fish. Now it's more like two thirds of the menu is meat and fish, one third. So it's a little bit of a movement. But out of that, there are definitely a couple of options on every, uh, which are not just vegetarian, but vegan. Because I think people are asking for it. I, I, I introduced things that I never thought I would. We have this sort of seven course tasting menu that when we created, um, to, I mean, this is just a seven courses of our favorite things from the last 20 years, just kind of put together in a, in a tasting menu thing. And so we, we, we served it, we opened it up after the lockdown um, as a 20th anniversary tasting menu. Um, first thing people asked was, is there a vegetarian option? And you say yes. And then the second <laughs> ask was, is there be a vegan? vegan one as well so before we realized we had committed ourselves to having seven vegan dishes in the kitchen <laughs> but, but, but the dishes that weren't created to be vegan either as well i've got one last sideways question which you might be able to answer or not but i just wonder just just to give people a sense of the kind of people that might be coming to dinner in the cinema club so how many how many current serving prime ministers, as it were, while they're in in power have you had in that dining room so not just you know so you know, how many prime ministers have come and had their Friday night curry in a pint after a hard week in uh, in the Commons <laughs> in the UK <laughs> in the cinema club? Due to another fact, anybody um, who's been, whilst they've been in the office, i.e. number 10, has never come here, right? They always come here either before they've got into number 10 or after they've been out of number 10. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think I want to ask what your influence is on the, either of those things. Then that's the <laughs> curious part of that. <laughs> the reality is, the reality is that um, when people are in number ten, they are not in control of their diaries. It's not a Friday night. It's not a Saturday night. It's, not, it's nothing. But before and after, they are. And um, well, I think the other way of saying this, is I'm, with the exception of, I think, since Maggie Thatcher, pretty much every prime minister in Britain has been an. <laughs> Cinnamon Club. Wow. Go as far as to say that every other minister as well since in the last 20 odd. But, you know, who, who, who's counting? 
That's amazing. So actually, anyone out there in any kind of lobbying groups or anyone who wants to get anything done in the world, basically they need to speak to you because you can get the... You're the man at the epicentre of power. Especially if there's an important vote coming up in the afternoon. I'm just saying, could you throw in a few more chilies in there? <laughs> knock out a couple of MPs. <laughs> Now we can hear we can hear the dining room and see the dining room kicking off in the background. So Vivek, we are going to let you go now and actually go and serve some diners. But uh, this has been a joy of a chat, and I would love to pick it up again in the future because I have mm. so many more questions and so many deep dives I'd love to do in your dishes and your creative process. But um, it's been a joy having you on. Thank you ever so much. Time flew on that as well. We hugely appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's been great chatting. Wasn't that brilliant? Yes. No, it really was. No, well, look, he's a... I mean, I used phrases like Sultan of Spice and whatever, you know, Titan of a Tandor or whatever. But what he is, is just... He's a man that is deeply passionate about what he does. He's also incredibly smart. He's endlessly curious, you know, and he's, you know, very generous with his knowledge and his skill. And he just wants to, you know, show you what the what Indian food can be from his perspective and and... To have taken on that journey to say, I'm not doing Rogan Josh, I'm not doing chicken tikka masala, you're not getting poppadoms with your meal, there's no free beer here, you know, and, and by the way, it's going to cost you £22 for a main course or, or whatever price he was, was, was saying, and just keep doing it because at the end of it, what you have is absolutely delicious and will show you that Indian food. It's this enormous, I mean, it's just, I mean, of course it is. I mean, when you, it makes, I mean, it's just so idiotic to think that, you know, Indian food can be categorised into seven different types of curry, you know, with a different rice dish on the side. Of course, it's a massive, seven, 13 times, I think, as big as the United Kingdom with regional differences, you know, but we we barely comprehend. There's different regions of Kerala yeah. in the south to Bengal in the north and split by the Bangladesh border and, and then you've got the influence from the Mughals and the people from the north. It's just, it's just unbelievably di- sort of interesting, you know, a country that, you know, to, ha- to have someone cooking food that's inspired by that diversity and passion like Vivek in, in Britain is just a treat. And I think, you know, yes, if you can if you can break the bank a bit a little bit, go to the club, which is a wonderful, you know, really wonderful place. Or there's, there's other places you can, you know, of, of you can taste Vivek's cooking, of course, but seek out people who are cooking Indian food that is just beyond the norm. There's nothing wrong with a Friday night curry if your favourite of you know, curry dish, but actually there's a whole different way to cook it which is out just you know just as accessible and just as delicious in fact more so you know the venison and the prawns and all these different ingredients you won't you won't see in your, your normal curry house it's just you know it's a real treat i talk to him all day he's a great friend of mine and i've been out for dinner with him luckily many times where we just talk about everything from whatever you know to, to you know and and it's never we never have indian food <laughs> No, really? No, of course not. He cooks it every day. You know, so we go Peruvian or, as he said, or Japanese or Spanish. or He just wants to eat everything and just see what it, what it tastes like and whether it's interesting and creative for him. What a lovely chap as well. He was, uh, yeah, an absolute delight. Now, uh, a couple, we ha- I have a little quiz for you and everyone listening in a moment. But before that, uh, we have had correspondents. Martin Hodge, hello, Martin, has got in touch. Uh, he said, I'd like to make another nomination for my most appreciated kitchen gadget to go into the Hall of Infamy. Uh, as a bit of background, what we're doing is we're asking you all out there to get in touch with 
uh, your gadgets, the good, the bad, and the useless. And if you write in with them, then we will we will name them in your honour, and you will own them for forevermore. And they will go into the hall. Now he's putting in one that he thinks is is vital. He says there's a story behind it. A while back, I was very lucky to be able to live and work in Madrid for a couple of years. It's a really great city. On my way home from the office one day, I popped into the supermarket for some bread, cheese, and wine. Uh, and discovered that this particular shop had an entire aisle dedicated to Jamon Serrano. Uh, literally hundreds of them lined up, row after row, and they were only, amazingly, 30 euros each. So he bought one, which is, which is always something to explain when you get home. He got the bus home with his cured pig's leg tucked under his arm. Bit, what an image that is. <laughs> and then he called in at the local hardware store for one of those support cradles and a razor-sharp carving knife. Uh, which he's told me what the what the Spanish is for that, but I'm not going to try and pronounce it. But it's a proper man that, way of doing but it. But the fact that the local hardware store would, would sell a uh, ham-supporting cradle... Of course, <laughs> and a razor sharp knife, and he went. He went home to try his carving skills on his leg. Uh, he said <laughs> about half an hour later, and several lacerations later, he went back to the hardware store and bought one of those steel mesh protective hand gloves uh, that he'd seen people wearing for various manual tasks. His nomination for the most appreciated gadget is a steel glove, <laughs> which is which is great. And uh, yes, that the steel glove now is is all yours, Martin. Oh, and it yeah. seems like you've well deserved on that front as well. Well earned. I like. It's that a idea. real skill that as well. I mean, it, it looks so easy, but carving those hams to get this so you know you don't just want to hack a big chunk out and put it on your bread you know there's a there's a real <laughs> skill to getting that really thin and knowing which bits of that leg to to eat i've been up you know again i've i have i've i've studied obviously when you're lucky enough to go to a party where someone's put one out, one of his legs out and there's somebody with skill who's carving it just spend about just spend obviously you can it's greedy and you can eat lots of ham but just study what they do and ask them some questions you'll find out that this man's probably been practicing for about 10 years to be able to do what he's doing yeah that, so, that wafer thin wafer yeah. thin ham there's a there's a there's a shop in soho on dean street i think it's amazing. It just sells the hams, and they're all lined up on the wall. But these—it's very arresting to see just these pigs' legs lined mm. up across across the shop, and they have one of those cradle support systems in there. Hopefully, some mesh gloves as well. I did once, and maybe we, we should invite him on sometime. There's a wonderful chef, Jose Pizarro, who's. Um, I once went on a trip with him to uh, this wonderful hamon producer called Cinco Yotas, who are down in Bayota in southern Spain, where we went to what I can only describe as a cathedral of ham which must have been a space <laughs> as big as St. Paul's with just a thousand hams hanging in it. And literally wow. the, fat, the fat is dripping from the ceiling onto <laughs> your clothes. It's just amazing. Though. <laughs> and you it was just smelling like ham. Oh, well, you just want to, I mean, it, it, it's just intoxicating. Yeah, no, it is. You know, it's amazing when you see how these hams are hung and produced. For, you know, they sit in those, those spaces for like a year. And they're all, because it's so high end, this ham, all of them, they said, all of these ones have already been bought. <laughs> you know, oh my God. they're already oh, owned. Really? Oh yeah, they're already owned by you know restaurants all over the world because it's such a fine producer. So as soon as they hang a ham, it's already gone. You know, to get hold of them is part of the, the challenge of you know what you do as a chef. You have to go and do some. I don't know what you do. You have to do some catering. <laughs> absolutely i mean it's a lot of a sort of a marketing of who you are is how you get hold of some of these products too but yeah it was it was an amazing experience but it's just to see these hams like you say in those weird like the shop with the, they've got you know the hams hanging in the window this was honestly it was like the dome of st paul's size you know just with ham in every space 
Yeah, I'd love to hear about that. I'd love to hear about those from around the world. These places where getting hold of a particular food is as rare as hen's teeth. You have to work really hard to get it. Yeah, and often pay, don't you? I mean, often that's the payola. I mean, you know, getting truffles and fine wines and, you know, the the journey of of good restaurateurs is as much about the products that you have on offer to your customers as it is about your ability to cook them. So, you know, it's, it's not easy. You can't just ring up you know, Cheval Blanc and order a case of wine for your wine list. You know, you have to spend a decade pushing yourself into the list to get the honour to be given the chance to buy the, you know, the fine wine that year, whatever. So, you know, I imagine the stories of some of the great chefs is littered with that relationship. You know, certainly the old days of people like Escoffier and, and these great chefs is all about the backdoor deal. You know, because obviously you've got a great restaurant, so some people want their products to be in your restaurant, but also you've got that reciprocal journey, which is you also need certain products from certain people to be a great restaurant. You know, you can't be a top-end, you know, fine dining restaurant without certain wines on your wine list or certain cheeses on the cheese board, and and so you've got to go get them. And these guys, these guys know that. So you know, at some point, there's there's got to be a handshake of something which says, okay, we're going to be on this journey together I'm going to help you get to the top and you're going to take me with you you know it's that that is the restaurateur skill you know certainly whether that be front of house or, or back of house from, from the kitchen side it doesn't matter who's got it but you have to you have to do that you have to get That's the, the sort right of joyous product. struggle isn't it because you hear you hear sort of you know when you hear a famous actor speaking they say oh you know I was starving for 20 years and now I can actually afford to get nice things people keep giving me stuff for free and it feels like a similar struggle which is when you are established then I'm sure it's not hard to get those things but it's the struggle to get to being a Established is when you need the most so mm. yeah that's, that's brilliant what a fun journey and sort of the ducking and diving to get those to get those things as well yeah and i guess you, you've got to yeah and you've got to take a few chances you can grab you know if you're opportunistic you'll see one or two products because you're a good chef and you're interested and you're keen you know you'll see that are very good but are underappreciated you know and you put that whole experience together with some products that people have to have you know and are expected to have and suddenly you've got quite an interesting identity for your restaurant you know and you can start to introduce your 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 customers to one or two things that you know they haven't had before and obviously i would expect the margins on those a bit greater you know as a restaurateur because you're not going to get cheval blanc wine for you know oh i get it cut down <laughs> it's going to be very expensive you're going to make nothing on it as a, as a product but you know you might on one or two other things that you can then put with that but other you know that people maybe are guided towards so it's you know that's part of the skill of it and, and people like vivek have been doing it for 25 years you know they they understand the, the nuances of playing around with that you know and also it's about curiosity it's about never taking your foot off the gas and always looking like he was saying for the next thing the next thing but also being sensitive to what the, the people in the dining room are, are kind of asking you to give them too you know yeah and the, having the confidence in your decisions as well which is which is remarkable. Now, we are rapidly running out of time, but I wanted to uh, give you a little quiz to everyone out there listening. So um, there are apparently, and and some of these stories are apocryphal, so you'll have to add your own finger full of salt to them as we go. But a number of very famous foods, apparently, were invented by accident. And I have a list of five of them here, but I'm not going to tell you what the food is. I'm going to tell you how it was accidentally invented and you're going to try and guess what it was. Uh, and I'm probably going to mess it up. So you, I'll probably say it in the middle of telling you. <laughs> but so, let's... So do, you want me to, do you want me to try and guess or do you want people... I want you to try and me? guess. Okay, yeah. yeah. And I want all people at home chopping onions to try and guess as well. So these are fa- five famous foods that were invented 
by accident. Mm, okay. I'll start with what I'm hoping is an easy one, all right? So all right. it's a paragraph of description. In 1837, uh, this bit might give it away, chemists William Perrins and John Wheelie Lee met a former governor of Bengal with a recipe he'd enjoyed during his stay in India. They gave it a shot, but dissatisfied with the results, they stored this jar in the cellar and quickly forgot about it. But after some time, the pair were reminded of their attempt, tried it again, and they discovered accidentally the fermentation process had worked wonders on its flavour. What did they accidentally invent? I believe it's going to be Worcestershire sauce. Very good. Just because yes. Le- you said Liam Perry. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. And it's, this one is true because I've been to the factory Have and you? they told us this. Yeah, and I saw the vats. And uh, yeah, this that actually mm. happened. It was one of those. But I, I mean, I, I still wonder the, the person that would stick their finger into that sort of fermented stinking vat and go, oh, that's actually quite nice now. But uh, yes, very good. Very good. Liam Perry. Yeah, Worcestershire sauce. All right. So next one. One out of one there. Popular legend has it that Ruth Wakefield, co-owner of Toll House, a popular restaurant in Massachusetts, accidentally created this classic treat in the 1930s when she ran out of nuts and swapped in chunks of bittersweet chocolate and was pleasantly surprised the pieces held their shape through cooking. However, some have claimed that Wakefield actually invented it through a rigorous series of trial and error before crafting the perfect antidote to the Great Depression. So, it's a classic treat, which we all so, eat so, today. So, oh, so, it's a treat. It's not a dish. It's like a... Like it's a, a treat, yeah. And we, and we, in the 1930s. And do and we she, know it here in the UK? It's not an American... Absolutely. No, I mean, you'd think of it as quintessentially American, but we eat a, a lot of them over here as well. Uh, and it's a particular sort of type of a of a thing that we like she and her key thing was when she put chunks of chocolate, chocolate in it in and it. they That's lasted right. through the cooking process is it like a chocolate chip cookie or something yeah it? it is, it is yes it? very good two out of two. <laughs> oh, you're good at this <laughs> well i'm just yeah. <laughs> yeah the chocolate chip cookie um very good two out of two now i think you'll get this one uh Next one, a doctor was looking to create a bland, inexpensive food item that would aid digestion of the patients in his health facility. In the 1890s, he was testing a variety of recipes and ingredients just as part of a larger health movement he was involved in to promote biological living. And the original recipe that he made had no sugar and was so hard it could crack your teeth. Do you know what it was? So it was... A bland, inexpensive food that would mm. aid biological living for people in his health facility. Now, I think, yes, because, th- okay, I think you might be talking about Miss Dr. Kellogg. Yes. Who obviously, you- well, I mean, event, I, I, I mean I, I'm going to go cornflakes, but it, I suppose... <laughs> Correct. Kellogg's have gone on to do lots of different things. Well, I mean, (laughs) it's a really interesting story about Kellogg. I'm quite fascinated by that, about the growth of the the sanatoriums or whatever, where people would go and have, you know, people do it today too, but people would have their their poo looked at and studied and he would try and tell you, you are what you eat. I mean, he'd clearly been reading a lot of Greek philosophy and and decided it was of interest. And he was absolutely right. We just didn't have the genetic... Genomic sequencing machine that we need to really understand. <laughs> he must have just been literally poking at it with a stick. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And then go and have a bowl of cornflakes. Yeah, That'll sort you out. Uh, okay, three out of three. Two more to go. You're doing very well here. Woo! Okay, this one's tricky, all right? But this product was the byproduct of animal feed in 1935, a Wisconsin-based employee. Now, if you know anything about Wisconsin, that will help you okay. uh, maybe, maybe a little bit on this. Uh, they were an animal feed manufacturer. They noted how the cleaning process for the grinder that produced the food for the animals required moist corn being fed through its system. But when the corn came out the other end, it had transformed into fluffy blobs. He discreetly took a handful home and seasoned it to see if it was edible to humans. They were, and the company expanded its production line to include snacks for animals and humans. So, what is a fluffy blob that someone in Wisconsin would go, Oh, I Well, think I don't I know could. why it would be Wisconsin, but are you, I mean, it's not popcorn or something, is it? In, in, oh, is it's it? cheese puffs, cheese oh, puffs. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wisconsin's cheese packers and all oh, that. Oh, okay, that. cool. So, yeah, oh. I don't know much about Wisconsin, but certainly that makes a lot of sense in the sense that, you know, weird things happen to certain things when you, you put them under pressure and you heat them. There's quite a, certainly in America, there seems to be quite an industry in that, you know, puffing things. Yeah, you know. puffing and extruding. And I don't know if this is if this is the same as Watsits or with Watsits came first or down a different road, but I'm thinking this is those round cheesy puff balls that are very mm. you know you get in every service station in america i seem to and make your fingers orange don't they everything goes orange yeah. yeah yeah and they have that fat content that when you put them in mouth they just dissolve and you just think you've not eaten you just keep eating you just keep it's going like a, but yeah. you know you have because your face and hands are bright orange <laughs> and you have a wave of guilt over you on every <laughs> level oh unlucky okay you've dropped one yet but you can still oh well uh, abro victory here mm. you're still going to come out on top but this one I, i'm pretty confident you'll get this in 1886 atlanta pharmacist dr john s pemberton was playing around with various flavors and drinks drinks creations when he accidentally crafted a yummy syrup concoction that he mixed with carbonated water Curious as to the public's reaction to his new fizzy drink, he, stole, he sold it from a soda fountain in his neighbourhood pharmacy where the patrons praised its flavour. Do you know what he accidentally, sort of not accidentally, created? Mm. I don't, so it's a, I'm going to have a guess. I'll have a guess, right? Because you mentioned it's a pharmacy um, and he was a doctor. And could he be... I mean, how, how how what's the catchphrase? How how bad could it be? Could it be Dr Pepper? Is it Dr oh, Pepper? Is it Dr Pepper? That's a really good guess, but it's Coca Cola. Oh, oh it is Coca Cola. Do you know what? I thought it can't be Coca Cola. It won't be that obvious. I am that obvious. Yeah, that's. A- <laughs> But yeah, Coca-Cola. But Dr. Pepper's a really good one. I wish it had been that now. I like the idea that his name was Dr. Pepper. That would be yeah. brilliant. <laughs> Who knows? But no, fascinating. Yeah, good. good. Yeah, it's always good to know. I mean, I'm, the origins of where things come from, is it by accident or is it just the natural curiosity of people around food? You know, is that an accident? I'm not sure. Some of them are people. If you play around with food enough, you'll create something delicious. Is that an accident? I don't know. But, you know, it's always good to understand. I like knowing beginnings of things. Because it inspires you, you to keep, well, it inspires you to keep having a go, right? Exactly, and just try new stuff and give it a go, and that's exactly what it is, isn't it? So, um, yeah, I'll rummage around and get some more of that for another quiz soon. But, um, but for this week, uh, with everything from cheesy puffs to curry, uh, James, we have unfortunately run out of time on our journey, so it's time to surface the submarine. Uh, um, but thank you ever so much as always. What an adventure! And uh, yes, we will, we will go again next week with more foodie explorations great fun really fascinating so yes let's 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 reconvene 
next week and, and go again. Lots of things to talk about. And I, maybe I'll do, do a little quiz for you. Oh, How about that? awesome. All right, brilliant. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>